someone who's who's able to say I don't know is actually someone who's safe practicing safely if you come across someone online and says if you just do this then this will happen you know instantly red flags Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. Now, this podcast was meant to be a supper club podcast with three incredible guests talking about uh, three individual themes, eat, motivate, and inspire. Obviously, with the current pandemic, it was completely impossible to do a supper club or arrange this. um, And what was meant to be this truly immersive experience where you get to eat food and watch live conversations with some of my guests uh, was pivoted to a zoom conversation where we had 20 people who uh, posed some of their questions before the live event and then uh, watched me do a 30 minute podcast talking about opportunities for growth post-pandemic i really do hope you like this episode it's really me sort of distilling some information and opportunities i think for us to do better post-pandemic and what we can learn from this tragic incident Um, if you want to join future live podcasts then do sign up at thedoctorskitchen.com newsletter and we will put out when we're going to be doing a live supper club where you can eat meet some of uh people who who probably share fellow ideas about food and medicine and also just connect with a a grander audience as well i really want to do something in the live space because i think some of the best interactions i've had with people who follow me uh, and people who also inspire me are just you know doing q a sessions and meeting each other in person so if you are interested in that then uh sign up to the newsletter that's where we'll be posting out uh initial tickets and stuff um and uh yeah i think it's just a good opportunity to meet everyone too so uh the podcast like i said the first half an hour is just me chatting and the second half is live q a from uh guests who who are on the podcast with me um and we talk about everything from plant-based diets uh, supplementation um, and everything in between so nothing specifically related to covid um, but uh, lots of general lifestyle tips anyway i hope you enjoy it give us a five star review or comment as well if you want to hear more of these and i will be sure to post those first of all thank you so much for joining me for the first live podcast uh, that I've ever done. So what I wanted to do with this podcast, it's kind of changed actually over the last couple of days, which is why I didn't really put a theme or anything to it. Because uh, as everyone is aware, the world is changing in so many different ways. Um, So I thought what I would do is give you some thoughts about how uh, I see nutrition and medicine going forward in a post-pandemic era. And uh, I'll talk for about 20 minutes or if I run out of steam, maybe before then, or maybe a a bit more. Um, And then uh, I've got a list of questions uh, that people have submitted before this. We'll try and get through all of them. I'm not too sure if I can get through them because there's quite a few questions. So apologies if I can't get through to yours. All right. So um, I told you about what the kind of podcast that... um, Oh, and by the way, this is the kitchen studio. Um, I'm at home. I'm actually cooking something at the moment. Hopefully it doesn't mess up whilst I'm on uh, the podcast with you guys. Um, And at, at the moment, what I've been doing a lot of is a lot more clinical work. So 
So um, for those of you who have no idea who I am or The Doctor's Kitchen, which I'm sure is a couple of you, uh, I'm a general practitioner. I trained as a, a GP over five years ago. I've been in medicine for about 11 years now. I also do emergency medicine. And my clinical role has increased over the last couple of months. So usually I, I'm fortunate to work part-time two to three days a week because I run a non-profit culinary medicine which is teaching medical students uh, the foundations of clinical nutrition as well as how to cook i um i also am doing a master's in nutritional medicine uh, which fingers crossed is going to finish later on this year pandemic pending uh, and i run the doctor's kitchen which is podcasting recipes that we put on the newsletter every single week and developing a digital product that will hopefully um demystify how to eat for certain issues and personalize nutrition for you without having to spend hundreds of pounds on nutritionists or appointments or or, or the sort of the hassle of looking through the web and trying to figure out how to best eat for yourself. So we want to try and simplify that process. And that kind of stems from my own personal experience, suffering with uh, something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats exceptionally fast uh, and irregularly. And I had to go through the process of being a patient and trying to figure out how best to look after myself because unfortunately it wasn't something that I learned in my conventional medical degree um, at Imperial. Imperial is actually doing a lot better now and in fact um, I'm involved in their lifestyle medicine course which is being delivered to all first year uh, and second year medical students and it just started this year uh, this academic year. So things are changing and we can talk about that a little bit later because I think that relates to one of the questions that we had here. So um Considering some of the podcasts that I've put out over the last couple of weeks, I'm kind of um, pivoting the topics of discussion um, around, yes, eating to be illness and eating to manage conditions and prevent illness from occurring in the first place, which is essentially what my second book was all about. Um, but pivoting more toward the wider determinants of health. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's about um, creating and cultivating communities uh, that allow health to thrive. It's about the discussion around how financial security is uh, is something that we need to really consider uh, using our, our lateral thinking hats, uh, putting our lateral thinking hats on um, to essentially allow a health and well-being to thrive. Um, it's also about the environmental question as well, which has never become more apparent to us uh, most recently because we're witnessing what it's like to actually have lower amounts of pollution and what the benefits of that might be as well. So my question and what I'm going to try and cack hand my way through this evening's discussion is the question of how we cultivate a community that's able to look after itself effortlessly and how we can uh, essentially grow and use uh, the teachings that will, will, will the, the experience of, of what is such a, a tragic scenario at the moment to better ourselves going forward. Um, and, and the key determinants of financial, environmental, societally, culturally, and from a health and resilience point of view. So I want to, uh, if, you, if you're an avid listener to the podcast, then you can switch off for the next five minutes because I'm going to talk about uh, an incredible podcast I did with Professor Guy Standing uh, very recently, just a couple of weeks ago. I reached out after, uh, I've, I've come across his work a couple of times, but I reached out um, a couple of weeks ago and I said, uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about the 
the, the notion of universal basic income. And for those of you who don't know what un universal basic income is, it's a non-means tested uh, financial contribution to every member of a of a, a, a population or a citizen of a country. So what that literally means is if yourself, your um, your uh, child who's over the age of 18, uh, your neighbors, everyone got a fixed nominal amount regardless of their employment status, their wealth status or anything. And it can be uh, anything between 50 pounds and uh, 200, 300 pounds per week, depending on what that country can afford. And whilst that sounds like a wacky idea and something that doesn't seem to, wouldn't seem to work on the face of it, and I was a massive skeptic before, actually looking at how you can A, financially afford that using current schemes that we have at the moment and better taxation. Um, and the potential benefits of that was enough to change my mind on the whole subject and actually consider it. Um, there have been some interesting experiments done in controlled environments in rural India. Um, and I believe Spain is going to be experimenting with UBI, perhaps in a smaller population rather than the whole nation. But I think this is something important. Um, and the reason why uh, UBI is potentially, uh, UBI being universal baking, basic income, the reason why I'm personally talking about that is because financial security improves uh, psychological health as well. Um, financial security isn't just about the money in your pocket and the ability to spend on luxury items. It's also the ability to nurture uh, your yourselves from a, a nutrition point of view, but also improve your overall well-being and having the financial resources to do that. Not everybody is going to spend that nominal amount on healthy food as we, I would love to nourish them toward. And some people might spend it on alcohol and tobacco because this is there, there are no conditions on this nominal amount. However, those who are uh, uh, interested and those who uh, do have the, the nudges and the behavioral change motivation are therefore able to engage in health-promoting behaviors. Now, it's a lot to get your head around, but I think uh, one of the books that I would highly encourage people to read is Guy Standing's book. It's um, called The Eight Giants. And it's about the, um, the parts of our society that we need to try and uh, manipulate and try and improve. And it, it goes across um, oppression, priority, um, precarity rather, uh, and a whole bunch of other subjects. So I think... Financially, we can grow out of this uh, tragic scenario and it's not through just uh, taxation changes. It's not through better welfare system. It's actually rethinking it from the ground up and just seeing what can happen if you give people um, security, literal security, and you elevate everyone to a basic level of income. And this is something I didn't actually recognize uh, enough of. Inequality and measures of inequality over the last 60 years have increased exponentially across the most industrialized nations. You'd think that wouldn't happen. You'd think it'd be the opposite. But actually, if you look at uh, data from Europe, data from the UK, data from the United States, uh, overall, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and more destitute. And we're seeing for the first time in decades that the uh, life expectancy, particularly of women from a, a lower socioeconomic uh, strata, has actually reduced. And that, for me, is just not acceptable whatsoever. So not to catastrophize, but I think it's something that we should um, be, be really thinking about. 
something else. So moving on from financial, I think um, uh, I had a conversation with another person I'm a huge fan of uh, called George Monbiot, um, who you may have heard of. He's a, he's a prolific writer. He um, writes for The Guardian, a whole bunch of other uh, um uh, portals um, and we talked about how we can harness intrinsic values of human kindness to foster better well-being society and how what we're witnessing over the last couple of months is better cooperation um, which is uh, it's it's hardwired in our neurobiology and there's a lot of evidence for this as well and what we need is a structure a political structure that essentially emphasizes this and encourages this for a number of different means um the prevailing political narrative of uh, being ind- an individual and, and rising to the top through by any means necessary is actually something that is very an- is the antithesis of what our evolutionary history is. Putting it this way, um, we wouldn't have survived in the wilderness had it not been for the cooperation within communities. We would have looked after each other's children. We would have hunted and gathered together as a community. We would have moved according to the seasons as well as a unit. And we would have had to protect ourselves from predators um, uh, on an ongoing basis. And that's something you can't do as an individual. So the notion of individualism is, it, it doesn't really strike a chord with how we are evolutionarily adapted. And in the context of our evolution, we are but a fraction over the last 10,000 years. We've developed over hundreds of thousands. So this is something I think, again, is to do with the political, and I don't want to talk politics the whole uh, evening, this evening, but I think um, this is something that breeds inequality. And I think we can be better humans and healthier humans as well um, if we change the, the constructs of our of our society using that. And I, I'd highly encourage you, you listen to that podcast when it comes out. Um, going back to more something that's, I think, a little bit easier to uh, conceptualize when it comes to health and well-being um, is the environment. And now the environment has had um, what I think is a really bad PR campaign. The climate change, global warming, call it what you will, even though it is so catastrophic, which is what something could happen over the next 10, 20 years, even though we've witnessed what it's like to see forests burning for months on end, it lacks immediacy to how our lives are on a daily basis. I'm sat here in my kitchen. I can get food from the supermarket. It doesn't affect me. Whereas now we actually understand what living in a desperate situation can look like. Now, this isn't desperate times for us by any means. Yes, there is a, a you know a, a pathogen that we're trying to deal with. We're lucky that we've actually had some of the um, uh, changes to uh, our freedoms, essentially, to try and, and uh, reduce the, the viral spread. Um, but on the grand scheme of things, the, cl- the climate change is going to have drastic ramifications on our on our well-being and our, and our ability to to um, thrive and grow as a, as a population and so this is kind of like a turning point for us to rethink about uh, rethink what we believe about uh, climate change and the environment and and what I believe um, could be the starting of a generation of children that know what it's like to live in, a, in an era where your freedoms are, are completely collapsed. Um, and so the immediacy that climate change doesn't provide has now been provided in the form of something 
uh, like w what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, and that this is where I think we can potentially use our current situation as a, as a hook as to what could happen with climate change. Even though they're quite different things, what we're witnessing, I think, is, um, is, is something that could be parallel to that, but it's probably worse, if I'm honest. Um, and whilst uh, pandemics could have occurred anywhere in the, in the world on a global uh, uh, scale, um, this could have started uh, anywhere. This could have started in the UK, could have started in America. There are plenty of opportunities where virulent pathogens could, could break out. Um, it, it doesn't always have to come from the Far East or because of wet markets or, or anything. And I've talked about that on a, on a previous podcast as well. Um, and lastly, culturally and from a health and resilience point of view, I think a lot more people are definitely cooking at home, which I, I'm I'm loving seeing and I think it's wonderful to see how many people are in the kitchen and how many people are actually learning to cook uh, those who hadn't had the time or whatever reason that's it's completely understandable as well but what I've seen is a shift from just baking banana bread which I've done as well and, and making cakes and cookies and all the comfort food to actually okay how can I use this as an opportunity to not just learn the basics of cooking but also how to eat properly for health and I think this sparks a cultural shift in resilience because what we're seeing and what I've seen certainly from the work that I've done in my own hospital and getting involved in intensive care is uh, the propensity towards worse outcomes with COVID-19 uh, are there where you have comorbidities like high blood pressure uh, cardiovascular disease obesity uh, metabolic issues all of which are in part mitigated by your lifestyle and your diet. And I think there is a, almost like a, a light bulb moment going in for lots of people's heads. And I think, again, lifestyle-related issues lack the immediacy effect in the same way climate change lacks that as well. I'll give you an example. When I um, explain to someone in primary care that they have high blood pressure, they can't feel it. They can't, in the majority of cases, you can't feel it. You, you can learn about it. You can understand that it raises your risk of stroke and cerebrovascular disease, cardiovascular issues, etc. I can explain to them that it might lead to kidney issues, eye problems, etc. But if it doesn't affect you in that moment, then you're less inclined and less likely to make the behavior changes unless nudged appropriately. Um, and I think this is something that a lot of people are clicking on because there's genuine fear about what's going on right now. And, um, and, and I think uh, that this could be a cultural shift for a lot of people. By virtue of being here, of you guys being here, I'm sure this doesn't apply to you guys anyway. Uh, but I, I've, I've noticed that in, uh, in patients and, and people talking to me and engaging me on social media uh, that perhaps wouldn't have in, in the past. So I think there are some potential good things to come out of that. The other thing, um, uh, again, linking it back to our, f our health and our food landscape is rethinking uh, what healthy eating looks like and actually creating a, a resilient population. And this comes down less about the individual although it is intrinsically linked, but more at a political and population level. There's been tons of campaigns about um, uh, reducing sugar consumption in children, uh, trying to tackle obesity, um, trying to tackle a whole bunch of other determinants of health, but one, one in particular is sugar. 
And I think um, people have really lacked the understanding of just how bad sugar is. Now, I'm not an anti-sugar person. I don't believe that, you know, you should throw away your brownies and cookies and stuff. But I think we also need to uh, appreciate that sugar in its various forms can be addictive. Um, I've written a a recent essay on this very topic and uh, we were lectured as part of my master's program by an incredible neuroscientist um, from Imperial College Healthcare Trust. And um, the the arguments for why sugar in particular can be an an addictive substance or have um, parallels with substances of misuse are pretty convincing. What I would say, rather than going to the science, is to to understand whether something is an addictive substance or not, you need to compare it with known substances of addiction. And what the characteristics are, are compulsion, uh, withdrawal effects, so those are both physical and emotional, um, as well as uh, tolerance effects. So that's where you need an ever-increasing dose of uh, a certain substance to have the same desired effect. And... We don't have human trials for this at this point with with sugar, um, but there's a lot of animal and preclinical data that states that it lights up certain raw pathways in your brain that uh, mirror that of a number of different substances of misuse. And um, that isn't to say it's as addictive, but certainly on a spectrum of substances that could have addictive like tendencies, it's certainly on there as well. Um, the the added uh, issue with uh, sugar is that it is um it, it's part of feeding and we are hardwired to uh, engage in activities where we seek out things that have uh, sweetness and certain flavors and and that's why the sugar fat uh, combination can be quite um uh, c- compelling um and just to to give you an idea about about what why um sugar is particularly difficult to compare to substances of misuse is that the the neurological reward the emotional limbic system as well as your um your decision making prefrontal cortex sort of triangulate to determine what your uh feeding decision is and that will lead to uh, decisions about chronic overeating. And not to blame the neurocircuitry and the impact of sugar on this circuitry alone, but certainly it does contribute. And when you combine that, that sort of uh, innate need for sugar with a food environment, which is littered with the stuff, to be frank, um, it's no wonder we have a population that is suffering for a number of different issues. And it's not just obesity. It, there is a that there is a huge number of, um, of of patients that don't have overt obesity at all, but they have an unhealthy lifestyle. Um, so that's all I really want to talk about this because I think I want to speak to a, a neuroscientist on the show and talk about addiction uh, in a wider context, what the comparisons are, and whether they are fair comparisons. But I think going forward out of this pandemic, it's something that we really need to um, address because. In a sense, um, one of the reasons why the U.S. is postulated to have such a a poor outcome is because of the prevalence of chronic um, diseases, uh, lifestyle-related illnesses that are in part related to the number of sugar-sweetened beverages and the poor food options as well as food deserts uh, that exist and hit the the most vulnerable populations uh, in the country. So... um, I want to get off my sort of milk crate here and uh, and and stop 
talking at you guys and instead engage you guys because I think I, I do a lot of lectures for uh, corporates and um, uh, and in a medical education uh, um, position as well and I think the the best uh, outcome or the the best sort of interaction is is by doing a Q&A um, and actually trying to tailor what I can tell you guys um, to, to what you actually want to hear. So um, I've talked a bit about uh, the different sort of financial, environmental, uh, societal and cultural changes that we can see uh, coming out of COVID um, and the pandemic uh, and why sugar addiction and, and um, post-pandemic medicine can be a lot more appreciative of the lifestyle issues. And I think that's definitely going to come to, come to um, a, a hill uh, after this. Hello. Hi. So uh, you had a question uh, that I've got on my thing here. Uh, I understand that certain microbes in the microbiome uh, can enhance the body's barriers to pathogens. Uh, what are these barriers and how can I optimize their function through my yeah. diet? Is that correct? Okay, great. So um, the microbiota is your population of microbes that live in and around your body, largely concentrated in your gut. And it contains uh, uh, mostly bacteria, but it actually also contains viruses and fungi and nematodes that live harmlessly in your in your ecosystem. In your ecosystem, um, if I could suggest one way to improve and nurture this microbiota, this this population of microbes, it's to increase y- your amount of fiber and variety. The reason why they say those two things is because a fiber is drastically low in our uh, consumption across the UK and and most industrialized nations. To be fair, um, the minimum requirement is thirty grams, and we don't even hit that. And from an evolutionary perspective, we would have been eating a lot more than that. We would have, would have been eating upwards of hundred grams plus. Um, uh, your microbes uh, thrive on different types of fiber. Um, they will create things like short-chain fatty acids, like acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Um, and, and those short-chain fatty acids are involved in um, metabolism and, and energy production, but they, they also nourish your digestive tract as well. So, so when your question pertains to, you know, how do you, how do you enhance um, your body's ability to, to um, bar itself from pathogens, um, that's one of the ways in which it does that. An appropriately nurtured microbiota as well is better able to perform its function, which is inherently immune. So it's part of your immune system. Um, your immune system is is everything. And, and there's a podcast I've done with this where we, could, we talk about this in a lot more detail with uh, Dr. Jenny Machocki, um, who's an immunologist from the University of Surrey. Um, so those are the main things. The other thing is variety. Now, I, I like to try and draw a comparison with uh, microbes in your gut and bored children that they need constant entertainment and they need variety of sources of, of fibers and, and different plant materials so you want to try and vary your your um, eating habits and that can mean like trying a new uh, ingredient uh, per week so that that's those are two ways in which I, I would um, try and nurture your microbiota so would that be all mainly plant-based so I, I would say it's heavily plant-based. Um, whether you choose to go 100% plant-based or not is your decision. Um, I personally choose largely plant-based, around 90%. I think that's, that's perhaps the best way for people to eat more generally. Um, but if you choose to go fully plant-based, that's completely up to you as well. So I kind of try to, it's just trying to find the variety of things, but I guess it's like you say, just introduce one thing a week. 
Absolutely. And I, like the TED talk that I, I that just came out, even though I did it like five months ago, is all about that process of just eating one more. Can you eat just one more at every mealtime? And can you, if you want to go a step further, can you vary it every week? Um, and you'd be well on your way to improving your microbiota. And, and there, there's studies that show that um, people who have a refined carbohydrate diet, which is full of junk food, after two weeks, they can completely change what their microbiota looks like um, at, a, at a taxonomic level. So yeah, there, there's, there's loads of ways in which you can improve it. And, and diet's one of the best ways. Yeah. Brilliant, thank, thank you. you. Thank no you. worries, no worries. You go for it. What's your question? Well, I'm curious as to if you have one really go-to ingredient or food flavoring that you couldn't be without. And so my question is, if you were on a desert island and you could only be guaranteed one food to cook with, along with whatever you could forage for, what would it be? Oh, amazing. That's, that's such a good question. It's very up for the doctor's kitchen. Um, so one food flavoring I couldn't get. Can I have a blend? Am I allowed a blend of spices? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I would go for Zata. It's like my, my favorite spice blend. And there's loads of different varieties. Um, there's a Palestinian variety that I'm currently eating at the moment. Um, and it's just this gorgeous, if you don't know, it's a gorgeous mix of um, marjoram, uh, oregano, cumin, sesame, a little bit of chili and heat. Um, sometimes it comes with sumac. Um, and I think I would definitely have that because whether you're eating uh, a root that you found in on a desert island uh, or whether you've got some beautiful seaweed or something, Zata just seems to marry it uh, with everything. It makes it a lot better. So that's probably what I would have, Fiona. Brilliant. I've, I've made it from your book, so I, I'm oh, really? <laughs> Brilliant. That's so good. <laughs> Thanks so much for your question. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Maya uh, is the next one on the list. I feel like my, that last question was really fun and really good, and mine's just going to be a bit late, but um, I do think it's quite uh, an important one. So okay. I, I saw, I'm going to read it because mm. it's quite word for word, but... Um, as someone who's curious about nutritional health but not yet qualified, I often spend a lot of time reading information and advice from various professionals, experts, books, etc. Um, and I find a lot of the time it's quite conflicting and quite difficult to digest. And yes, I did put that as a pun. Um, and it's really difficult to decide, you know, what's right, what's wrong. So, like, what's your advice on that? Because if you're naturally curious, and I'm actually studying nutrition at the end of this year for three years and it, you know I'm almost like trying to set myself up to to that point it's like what do I believe what do I read and what you know it's really difficult to to make a decision sometimes it's a it's a really good question and it's something I get asked a, a, a lot you know what is the best diet who do I listen to how do I know they're qualified yada yada and I think um there are a few things a few little hacks that I use to try and validate whether some what someone is saying is is true and whether I should even be entertaining listening to them um credentials don't always mean everything so even though I say credentials, like whether you're a doctor, whether you're a registered nutritionist or a dietitian, etc., it doesn't mean everything. It just means that up to that point, they've done enough academic work to get that credential. But you, you always judge. You should always judge people by what they are saying, whether they can back up their arguments with science or not, and if they actually um, caveat what they're saying if there isn't science. So if I'm asked a question. And I'm not aware of the science behind it. I always say, I don't know. Because 
someone who's who's able to say i don't know is actually someone who's safe practicing safely if you come across someone online and says if you just do this then this will happen you know instantly red flags instantly red flags the other thing uh, is brandishing general advice for an entire population is just never going to work and unfortunately it's kind of what public health england have to do a whole bunch of other um, health boards across different countries have to do they're in a rock and a hard place because they're trying to give general advice to the entire population without really recognizing that you yourself are an individual and your needs might be completely different and that's why i don't really have a plate or anything it's just i have principles of healthy eating largely plants lots of colors fiber quality fats and uh and, and eating in time um and i would say you know those uh, those apply for the majority of people but some people might thrive on a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet or a vegan diet whereas others might not so i think we just get the basics right and then find your your way thereafter so so how do you sorry i'm just going to carry it that's sorry, right how do you um you personally and I guess some of your sort of colleagues that are in this sort of limelight try and challenge that because I think you know nowadays you can be an influencer and you could be a nobody and I it's so you know that I work in that industry as well so I understand how how um sort of toxic it can be when there's like wrong information put out there and there's almost like a group of people like yourself like trying to make that positive change and then you've got another group that could be even bigger and more influential so how do you kind of put how do you face that challenge because it's it must be really difficult it's yeah it's a really good point and it's it, there isn't a straight answer i can give it's like it rather than trying to focus on being bigger and shouting other people down i just stick to what i know and hopefully word of mouth through pragmatic means will just influence a lot more people um you know for example the whole five a day message is something that i'm fascinated by was started something like in the 1980s uh, i believe uh, in america and it's so pervasive if you ask anyone on the street they'll know how many fruits and vegetables are you meant to be eating five but we don't do it because we need some other means rather than just information but that's the way i think we're going to actually educate people simple uh, actionable tips that people can take on board and ways in which to recognize you know what if someone's telling me to eat whipped cream and you know drastically reduce that it's unlikely to work um so that's that's my two cents on it just have to keep on going that's cool i think simple is definitely the key and yeah i think that's it's really good advice so thank you no worries maya <laughs> Who's next here? Danny. So my question is on probiotic um, mm-hmm. foods. Um, so, you know, kimchi, kefir, all, all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, we know they're super good for you, but is there a way to have them to kind of maximize those benefits? Like, are they better with breakfast, dinner, with meals, without meals? How, how are they good to kind of consume? Great, great question. So probiotics is this like huge burgeoning field. And just to clarify for everyone, there are three main buckets that I like to put these in. So there's prebiotics, which are uh, non-live substrate or fibers that essentially feed uh, microbes in your gut or even outside the gut as well. There's probiotics, which are live bacteria, but sometimes they're, they're not always live. They can actually be 
inert or dead and you just have like the bacterial cell walls or the fungi cell walls and they'll still exert beneficial effects on your microbes and you have something called symbiotics which is a combination of pre and, and probiotics um, and that essentially sends the microbes on their way and then gives them like a packed lunch to go with as well um, and symbiotics is sort of the reason why I describe symbiotics is because that's kind of the way you want to think about uh, taking probiotics it's not just taking a small teaspoon essentially and putting it in the ocean of microbes that is your digestive tract you've got to feed it as well and that again pertains to the um, principles of healthy eating so largely colors lots of plants variety um, and lots of different types of fibers so beans nuts lentils legumes if you can tolerate that uh, and when, when I say that, I mean, like always go slow if you're new to sort of this way of eating um, or you're drastically changing your diet. Uh, in terms of time of day, uh, I'm not aware of anything specifically that says you have to take it at certain times. But I think pragmatically, it would be best to take it at the end of a meal. So um, you're actually and not on an empty stomach. Um, so you're actually uh, introducing a lot of those uh, fiber, uh, those um there's microbes uh, with fiber as well. Um, I'm aware of a company that states that you should leave 10 minutes uh, between having your probiotic and then eating food or vice versa. Um, but I, I'm not too sure of the science uh, to back that up. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> and if there's a really good book to, if you're interested in, in gut health in general, there's a few books that I have on the website that I recommend. And then uh, Megan Rossi's uh, Eat Yourself Healthy is a fantastic resource for a lot of people. Who's next here? Priya Joshi. So um, briefly, um, I got diagnosed with a kidney condition about um, 11 years ago. Mm. And it's inflammatory based. It's called um, IgA nephropathy. Mm. And I've done really well. I've maintained my kidney function all this time. Um, but I just, um, I am vegan. Um, so I have over the last 11 years made a lot of changes to my lifestyle. But I was just wondering what more, especially with the prevalence of inflammatory diseases out there, what I could be doing, um, what more I could be doing. So yeah, that's, uh, I mean, first of all, congrats on making all your lifestyle changes and improving your condition if you found that. I think that's brilliant. There are lots of renal specialist dietitians out there as well who give a lot of resources out there. So I definitely um, hit up the BDA website and try and figure out if you don't already have one yourself. I'm assuming you don't. Uh, sorry, I don't have, sorry. Uh, a BDA registered dietitian that you see? Uh, no, I don't actually, no. Okay, fine. So I would I would certainly do that because there are dietitians that spend their entire professional lives just focusing on renal uh, conditions. So IgA nephropathy is a, a renal condition, as you said, Priya. Um, in terms of improving inflammation that is based on, on that kind of condition, I'm not aware of anything that would add to that. And there certainly isn't evidence based for that. Vegan diets are generally really good. The reason why is because you're actually reducing the uh, overt protein content and that can actually lead to a damaging effect if you're having that in excess. And it's quite unlikely that you're going to have excess amount of protein in your diet that could be worsening your condition. So even if you have a low animal protein diet or a vegan diet, then that's usually a good first step. Um, hydration and all the other things that I think you're aware of. 
But in terms of optimizing it further, there isn't anything that I can think of at the top of my head um, without looking into it um, a lot more detailed. And I, and I would highly recommend you speak to a BDA registered dietitian that is has a specialist interest in, in renal disease. Cool. Um, so one thing I am doing is I am, I don't know if you've heard of Vivo powders. Those um... Vivo powder, no. Oh, yeah, there's the um, vegan protein drinks and they've got like okay. a broad sort of spectrum of all the amino acids and everything like that. So um, as you mentioned, having a low protein diet, that is the protein powder is something I actually do take on a okay. daily basis. So do you think okay. you know, before I speak to the, the dietitian, do you think that's something I should continue in the interim? Oh. That's a really, really good question. And I think that's one that you need to speak with a medical professional or a dietetic professional on a one-on-one -on -one basis so they can look at. And the reason why I say that is because before even answering that question, I'd want to do a seven-day food diary to find out just what your diet exactly looks like and whether there is uh, a need for you to be supplementing with protein at all. Um, with certain disease states, there can be protein losing uh, issues where you actually have to supplement with amino acids, similar to that kind of drink. Um, but that's why I would, I would, I would, I would hesitate to even entertain that question on this. I would, I, I would certainly say that you need to speak to a specialist one on one. Okay, cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for joining. Lucy Blair, I think is the next one. Hey, Doctor Ab. Um, hey. My question was um, about what you hope the future impact of your work with The Doctor's Kitchen might be. Mm -hmm. um, I think you talked about a lot of those points earlier, so I kind of just wanted to add to that slightly, if I may. And um, I've read some really fascinating articles recently on planetary health and how the health of the planet is you know, intimately interconnected with the health of humans and um, how our sort of destru destruction of natural habitats might have contributed to the start of the pandemic and might even incre increase the risk of future ones. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I mean, you talked earlier about there being a really urgent need now to kind of cultivate communities that um, enable health to thrive and how in a lot of ways we've kind of actually moved away from how we've evolved to sort of to live and to eat and to socialize so um, I just wanted to ask you like how do you think we can best combine sort of the, the need to save the health of the planet and our own health and do you think kind of moving back towards certain ways that we used to eat say or used to value kindness more those kinds of things might help yeah so it's it's a it's a really good question i think it's a really important one as well because um we do need to be a lot more mindful of the consumption of our consumption and how that has a detrimental effect uh, impact or a positive impact on our environment and um, i think over the next 10 years we will see the immediacy effect of what is happening from our actions today um there's a couple of things that i that give me hope um the 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 interest in investment communities and venture capital communities in plant-based eating they see it as a trend it's hugely growing it's going to help a lot of um trying to reduce the uh the the need for animal-based products which is going to have a knock on a positive impact on on um uh, animal welfare and obviously in the environment you've also got um uh, people trying to figure out other means by which to uh, grow 
even animals, but even grow products more regeneratively. So this is whole new, um, uh, well, it's not new actually. I, I say new because I'm, I haven't come across it before, but I am doing a podcast on it with uh, a, a scientist called Abby Rose, um, who uh, is, is, been in farming her whole life and she's a, a, an incredible scientist um, and regenerative farming is basically where you're thinking not only about the yield of your farm but also how you're putting it back into the soil so you're really looking at the microbial health and the phytobiome of the soil um, and that's something that we really haven't put that much emphasis on uh, over well since you know the um, uh, specialization of labor and farming so I think those are a couple of topics that are going to really uh, excel um i as a skeptic i don't think you can rely on people's goodwill alone because we always fall back to bad habits um and, and i think if we don't legislate and actually provide incentives to businesses to do the right thing they won't do the right thing because we live in a capitalist society so those are my sort of, sort of top level thoughts in it um and i think with regard to you know medical education culinary medicine it's what we kind of touch on with regard to sustainable eating uh, and the eat lancet report that got loads of traction uh, early in 2019 is still continuing to do a lot of work as well and i think that will reach a lot of people Amazing. That's so fascinating to hear your kind of thoughts on this. And I'm really excited to hear that you're going to be touching on topics like this in, in more detail in future podcast episodes as well. Can't wait to hear. Definitely. Thanks so much, Lucy. Have a good evening. You too. Pharmacy in the kitchen, in your kitchen. Great name. Well, my name is Cheryl, but um, Cheryl. I have a small business called Pharmacy in Your Kitchen. Brilliant. What's your, what's your question, Cheryl? My question is, um, since you are 90% plant-based, mm -hmm. is there uh, a need for you personally, or would you recommend if you're trying to follow those guidelines for any sort of supplementation? Specifically, I'm thinking about omega-3 fatty acids, um, but that, that was the, the main question. But just in general, if you're that plant-based, which I'm totally 100% uh, in favor of, mm. What do you recommend that people typically look at for supplements? So, um, yeah, it's a good question and one that I get asked uh, about a lot. Um, supplementation, I, I like to think about four things when it comes to supplementation in general and maybe more depending on individual needs. So omega-3, the long-chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA, I think uh, there's pretty good evidence um, that it definitely lessens the risk of neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, dementia and improves cognition potentially so i always go for omega-3 fatty acids you're unlikely to get good amounts <clears throat> of the long chain fatty acids from a purely plant-based diet unless you're having oily fish and um, the small oily fish as well um uh, b12 is pretty much a must for most people the number of people i know have omnivorous diets we check their b12 it's low there's a whole bunch of other reasons why someone's B12 might be low, not just because they're not having adequate amounts from animal products. Um, stress can impact it. Gut health can impact it. Um, the uh, the loss of a certain enzyme can also impact it as well. Um, with regard to iron, um, again, the 
iron isn't just about the heme iron complex that you get from animal products. It's also about the, your, the health of your gut as well and inflammation that can reduce the conversion into absorbable parts of iron. So you can get good amounts of iron from beans, nuts, and, and seeds if you are uh, vegan 100%. Um, but uh, it also just depends on your overall health as well. And there might be other reasons why, particularly for women of, um, uh, of, uh, with normal menstrual cycles, there's that monthly loss as well, and that can impact on iron stores. Um, and the other thing is vitamin D. Um, vitamin D3 uh, is something that, at least here in the UK, we certainly recommend at a governmental population level that during the winter months, everyone should be taking vitamin D3. Um, and I think if you're from uh, black, African, uh, or um, uh, Asian uh, minority backgrounds, then there's something to, to supplement uh, as well and have checked because uh, we tend to have lower uh, D3 in our blood. So th- those are the main ones, but th- there are a whole bunch, of, there's a huge spectrum of um, supplements like probiotics and um, uh, choline, magnesium, zinc, all these different things. And I, I try not to recommend those individual huge doses because you want to try and get the orchestra of different micronutrients and phytonutrition from a, a good wholesome diet. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate everything you do. And thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Cheryl. You have a great evening. George G. Hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> Good to see you, George. What's uh, your question this evening? My question was pretty similar to the one before, so I'm going to ask a slightly different question. Okay, sure. How important do you think it is to include organic foods in your diet, in particular when going for meats and milks and eggs? How important is that wild fish? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, So it's interesting. My my thoughts on this, I imagine, are going to evolve. So primarily, my mission at a population level is to try and get more plants on plates, trying to get people to think about the basics of getting nutrient-dense ingredients on your plate in in the first instance. Um, And that's the primary issue that we have, uh, I think. Whether you choose to go organic is kind of like the extra 10%. There isn't good evidence base to say it has a lot more antioxidants or a lot more phytonutrients. There are some marginal increases in benefit, but the real issue is pesticides and herbicides and whether that has a negative impact. Overall, the consensus is that they're much the same and it doesn't have an effect. But I think there's going to be a lot more evidence to come out that it probably does have an impact, if not on our own ecological system, certainly on the environmental system as well. And I'm going to be doing sort of a discovery of myself and educating myself on this subject. The more I I interview other people who are experts, there is a podcast I've already done with um, Karen from uh, the Happy Tummy Company. If you're interested in that, then I'll definitely listen to that one as well. Me, animal products, um, I think the main issue for me is the sourcing of it and if it's uh, produced with the, with the wealth of the animals themselves. I do not support things like um, cage uh, cage chickens. I, you won't find me going to a local doner kebab or like any of that, any, any point where I can't at least qualify to myself that this is as best produced a product possible organic etc etc like it's just a no-no for me so uh, it means that i i'm largely plant-based when i eat out as well cool great thanks a lot thanks george appreciate it we have uh vanda kusak i hope i've pronounced that correctly 
So my question was, basically I'm vegan almost four years and obviously when they say you go vegan, sometimes your skin could react badly. And um, since then it's improved for me, obviously four years, but it's still having problems. And I wonder, mm -hmm. do you think if the vegan diet doesn't work for everyone or I might be missing out on something, like my diet is pretty balanced and healthy. Mm. So I just wonder if, if it's just not working for everyone. Or yeah, so so from at a, I'll answer that question at a at a overall level rather than an individual level. So the question being, is a vegan diet appropriate for every single person? The the the, the vast majority of people, I think, people can thrive on a well balanced, well portioned vegan diet. Um, however, there are certain people that may not thrive on a vegan diet for a number of different reasons. If they are definitely following it correctly, um, there are certain issues. So omega-3 is the long chain omega-3, not the short chain that you get from walnuts and chia and a whole bunch of other sources. The long chain omega-3 is virtually impossible to get from a purely vegan diet, unless you're having algae and seaweed and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd always recommend getting omega-3 and that can actually have an impact on skin quality as well because it's involved in the fatty acid synthesis and reducing inflammation, etc. Uh, vitamin A. So you get loads of pro-vitamin A from things like butternut, squash, and kale, and a whole bunch of other sources. But the conversion of vitamin A differs from person to person. And depending on your genomics, you might actually lack the ability to change that from pro-vitamin A to the retinol, which is something that you get preformed in animal products. There are a couple other examples of the same sort of issue across the spectrum. And if you have enough of those potential single nucleotide polymorphisms, then it can coalesce into something that leads to a problematic vegan experience. And this is why I think it's always really important to uh, think a bit more intuitively about your body whether you're thriving it whether you enjoy it and if there are ethical reasons then of course there are ways in which to mitigate this with appropriate supplementation um, but if you feel unwell or anything then a go to see your gp and b i would have a one-on-one -on -one with a nutrition um, specialist who can go through your entire diet seven days and just see you know where things might be lacking as well so you would suggest maybe to try a vitamin a supplement because i'm do i do take omega-3 like in an algae form so you think it would be useful to supplement with vitamin a then not necessarily no <laughs> that's not what i'm saying i'm talking at a, at a general level so i can't give you individual advice about that i'm just saying that there are some pitfalls with a vegan diet and you know it can include a whole bunch of other things that you know b12 choline uh, a whole bunch of other issues that you know can can uh, can present themselves as as uh, medical problems um but yeah, so I'm sorry, I can't say just take a vitamin A supplement and you'll be fine. It's like, it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. <laughs> Cheeto, I think is the next one. Cheeto. Hiya, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. What's your question? Thanks this for evening? doing this. Um, my question right. was, um, when I was recovering from chronic fatigue, when I was recovering from cancer, um, I was recommended a smoothie, which I took. Mm. And within 21 days, the smoothie actually made me feel better because when oh, wow. you're suffering from chronic fatigue, the whole idea of cooking and eating healthy is just not something you'd be able to do. But the, mm. the, the smoothie recipe, which I was given while I was at college, just, I don't know whether it was the, the, 
the smoothie or just the fact that I was doing something for myself, but within 21 days, I did feel a lot better. Is there any such recipe that you have? Um, uh, <laughs> to, to make you feel better? Well, just to help with chronic fatigue or just basically to, yeah, to make you, um, give you a, a real boost of vitamins and everything yeah. within just one meal or in one smoothie yeah. or something. Well, first of all, I think your story is amazing. Uh, I always love hearing about how people have overcome uh, illnesses or, you know, feeling unwell, chronic fatigue in your instance, and, and, you know, particularly after cancer as well, can be a particularly harrowing experience. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there too. If you've had a positive experience with having uh, a smoothie or a drink or whatever for 21 days as a supplement to your diet, that's amazing. And I would, you know, I'm really open-minded as to why and how these can uh, have impacts even at the psychological level like you said you know it might just be the fact that you're able to look after yourself using a nutritious drink i personally don't have many recipes in terms of smoothies with that in mind um, but there is a really interesting smoothie if you are interested in one um, that has been formulated by a uh, i think she's a clinical geneticist her name is Rhonda patrick um, you, you'll find her, her, her smoothie online. If you just look up Rhonda Patrick um, smoothie, it's literally got everything you can imagine put into it. And the reason why is because she's formulated it to, uh, to have all the necessary micronutrients needed for a fully functioning, but it's a really big smoothie. I'll warn you now, it's like a lot that you put in, but that's, that's the one that I could say, like hand on heart, someone with a proper science background is actually formulated um, to contain a lot of the nutrients. The other thing I would say about smoothing and, and juicing in general is that I tend not to do that. The reason why is because, um, and it's different for everyone. So, you know, for, for, for yourself, for example, I can understand why it would have been beneficial because you're uh, allowing your body to absorb something, particularly if you hadn't been, you know, having good nutrition prior to that. Um, but it breaks down a lot of the cell structures and increases the uh, the intake of, of glucose straight into your, into your cells if you're blending fruits, for example. And that can mitigate against some of the benefits that you find in whole vegetables and it macerates the fiber as well which slows down the digestion which is basically how we're naturally um uh, developed to 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 take in food so that's just the one caveat i'd say always be mindful of that and, and don't go too overboard with the juicing and uh, smoothing okay perfect thank you very much i wish you well Shita. thanks so much thank for you. joining this evening bye-bye now My pleasure. bye Okay, great. I think I'm going to take one more question, guys. And then I know I've gone over and I've tried to get through everyone. So uh, Carol Devine, I think. I don't think I've asked your... I don't think I've answered your question. My question was in relation to eating for hormone balance, especially mm -hmm. for women. And I know mm -hmm. you've maybe touched on some of the issues already. Um, I suppose I'm thinking about on a plant-based diet, about pesticides and how that impacts on your hormones. Um, environmental toxins that's a really good question and i get asked this a lot and that so with female hormones it's a very complicated subject and uh one that i think is gonna take a, a lot more sort of um, time but i will answer your question about uh what you're alluding to there which are xenoestrogens essentially uh synthetic um estrogen mimicking molecules that you find 
in um, pesticides and herbicides and, and some other synthetic chemicals and also personal care products that can interfere with the estrogen receptor and lead to uh, potentially increased risk of um, uh, excess hormones, whether that be an increased risk of cancer or an increased risk of um, uh, if you're uh, premenstrual, then uh, you can have uh, excess bleeding, menorrhagia, um, etc. So the best thing I could say is a isolate what could be uh, xenoestrogenic in your in your diet. Um, and B is fiber. So fiber is something that I've talked about on a previous podcast, but it's one of the most effective ways in which you can actually remove estrogens from your body. A lot of people who are constipated because of having lacking of fiber are losing that ability to safely remove excess estrogens in multiple different forms by just having a poo every day. And it sounds very simple, but, but a lot of us are constipated. It's something I see all the time. The other thing is, so other than fiber and having making sure that you're having adequate amount of fiber, is actually having lots of different types of greens in your in your diet. So um, spinach and and uh, kale, but particularly the cruciferous um, brassica vegetables. So the things like uh, rocket and cauliflower and cabbage, um, because those actually contain certain micronutrients and phytonutrients that support. Uh, the detoxification uh, processes in your in your liver so there is nothing that you can consume that detoxifies you however there are things that you consume that support your natural detoxification mechanisms there's phase one and phase two in your liver for example uh, and that relies on things like riboflavin b vitamins and yes even some phytonutrients in particular indoles and sulforaphane that can that can aid that process so those are the two things i i I, I tend to talk about if you're interested in the subject as i am as well um, i'm doing a full podcast on um, menopause uh, and eating uh, with with women's hormones in mind uh, with a with a doctor who's a specialist in um uh in in pre uh, in uh, menopause and um primary ovarian ovarian failure as well so Definitely look out for that. It's going to be released in the next couple of weeks. And we talk for about two hours on the subject. So I hope that helps in the meantime. (laughs) Thanks. I'm going to wrap up there, guys, because I've been talking for about an hour. Thank you so much for for joining this live podcast. It's I wish I could do this in person with you guys. And and when we do do it at some point in the future, just make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter, thedoctorskitchen.com. And we'll post when we're going to be doing a QA, and a a supper club um, and all that kind of jazz. Um, And it will be, yeah, it'll be great to see some of you guys there. I'm so sorry uh, I couldn't answer everyone's question. Um, but uh, but I really do appreciate you guys turning up uh, on a on a random Tuesday evening to to listen to me whistle along. Um, so I really do appreciate it. I'll try and get back to some people uh, in the comments as well. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your attention. And thank you so much for the support as well. Really do appreciate. It. Stay safe. Stay indoors. Hug your family members, but no one else. And uh, remember, you can stay emotionally connected uh, even if you're physically distant uh, right now. So remember to, to text your friends, uh, do a video call and, uh, and tell your loved ones that you love them. Take care, everyone, and, uh, and have a safe evening. Bye now. I really hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. I know it was different to what I had imagined, but we will be doing something in that live space where we do a supper club, three courses of meals, 
get to watch uh, uh, me and some guests live on stage, ask questions live, and also meet fellow followers as well, and people who have the same sort of like-mindedness about lifestyle medicine and the wider determinants of health as well. Sign up to the newsletter, thedoctorskitchen.com, if you want to be first in line for tickets to that as well, whether we do it on Zoom, digitally, or actually in person. And, um, and also sign up if you want recipes every single week. We send brand new recipes every single week to everyone on the newsletter, of which there are thousands now, and we are a growing community, and it's super exciting to see that too. I will catch you here next week. Thank you.